When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The US Constitution has been the bedrock of the legal system in the United States since its creation shortly after the Revolution. But how does something drafted over 200 years ago remain so relevant? In this episode, we're taking a closer look at one of the most important documents ever written to answer the question, what is the Constitution? Welcome to America, a history podcast. I'm Liam Heffernan, and every week we answer a different question to understand the people, the places, and the events that make the USA what it is today. Joining me this week is Emma Long, Associate Professor of American History and Politics and Head of the Department of American Studies at the University of East Anglia. Emma, welcome to the show. Thanks, Liam. Good to be here. Yeah, great to have you on. And uh, you are, of course, one of our podcast faculty, so you're going to be a regular voice on the show. So um, for our listeners' benefit, give us a brief outline of who you are and what your areas of expertise are. Okay, thanks. Like I said, uh, my name's Emma Long. Um, I have been involved in American studies for more than 20 years. I did my undergraduate degree in American studies and just kind of never left. Um, I have a particular interest, which will not be surprising given today's discussion, in the US Constitution and its history and also the way that it works in practice. Also, the US Supreme Court both as an institution and how that works historically and the present day. So I think we may be talking about that at some point, probably (laughs) today and also probably in the future as well. And I'm also interested in the links between religion and politics in the United States and how those things link together or not sometimes. So plenty of things to keep me busy and out of trouble. (laughs) Yeah, and obviously we're going to get you back um, many times to talk about all things Constitution, Supreme Court. So, yeah, it's great to have you part of the podcast team. Um, So let's just dive straight in, shall we? Uh, Obviously, today we're going to talk about the Constitution, which feels like the right place to start any podcast about American history. But I feel like one of the, 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 the most confusing things about the Constitution is that It's not just the Constitution. You have the Declaration of Independence, you have the Bill of Rights, you have the amendments. All of these terms get banded around a lot in relation to, you know, American law. So what is the difference between all of those? Sure. Uh, They all kind of come in a short period of time, so they all get muddled up, right? Okay, so let's start with the Declaration of Independence, right? Basically does exactly what it, it says. It is literally the American colonists getting together and saying, we want to be independent from Britain. We no longer want to be colonies, these 13 colonies. We want independence. So it's sort of a statement of intent, right? Um, It comes in 1776, 
before any of the other things that we're talking about today. And it includes sort of, it's both sort of philosophical and practical when you read the Declaration of Independence, right? So there are these broad philosophical principles about the idea of um, the pursuit of life or life liberty and the pursuit of happiness and the, the concept of unalienable rights that people have inherently that governments can't trample on um, and at the same time it's also a very long list of grievances of the colon that the colonists had been expressing against the British government and against King George the the third for 20 years by this point so everything from the famous no taxation without representation to um, the what they saw as the refusal to pass laws or to repeal laws they didn't like or closing down courts so that people had to come to Britain to be tried. So there's a whole range. It's basically a long laundry list of, of complaints that sort of sets out why they are declaring independence, why they think they should be independent and the, the reasons for that. And if you read it closely, you get some hints of the kind of government you think that they should have, or they thought that they should have, if you read between the the lines. But that's not really what it's about. It's not about them saying, this is the kind of government system we want or anything like that. It's about saying to the British, you're bad. We don't want really anything to do with you anymore. Um, And so uh, we are declaring our independence. It feels like just a big middle finger to the British, basically. Pretty much, yeah. yeah, 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 and of course, then they go and fight a war for six and a bit years to decide how that's going to to work its itself out. If if you get confused, the Declaration of Independence is literally that. Then to move forward a bit in in time, the Constitution, uh, which is really what we're talking about today, right? So the Constitution is the American framework for government at its most basic. That is is what it is. It creates the institutions that we know about today. So it creates Congress, it creates the executive branch, which is the presidency, and it creates the Supreme Court, although details about the Supreme Court get worked out slightly later. It sets out their powers, what they can do, and in some cases what they can't do, and how they relate to one another. So you hear the phrase checks and balances set out a lot. And that's basically sort of where the power of one ends and the other one comes in. So that's pretty much what the Constitution does. It's not importantly to remember the first American framework of government. I think this gets missed sometimes. They don't declare independence and suddenly the constitution appears out of nowhere. Right? There, there is a system of government before that called the Articles of Confederation that ultimately come together shortly after the new government um, declares independence. It's created in an emergency. They need some form of government if they're going to get rid of the, all the British institutions and they have to fight a war. So you get this system of, of government which operates right up until the constitution comes into effect in um, 1789. Um, what happens is that after the war, the war with the British ends in 1783, um, and they go about trying to work out how to run this new country that they've sort of created as a result of, of this. But there are all kinds of problems. Um, practical ones like runaway inflation. They don't have their own currency, so they've got to work that out. People aren't very happy. They've been promised all these things as a result of the revolution, and, and it takes time to work those out, so people are unhappy. But they're also finding that the system that they set up doesn't work. So 
it was a single legislature. There wasn't a presidency. There wasn't a court. It was a single legislature. Each state had one vote. You had to have a super majority to do anything. So nine out of the 13 had to approve. And if you needed to change anything, it needed unanimity. And of course, the reality is when you're getting into a practical situation outside of the emergencies of war, those things just didn't work. So in all the problems that the country had, the government couldn't respond to it and people get annoyed. So some of the the leading figures of the day kind of looked around. They looked at the problems across the the country and realized that they needed to do something. (laughs) Um, Otherwise, this new experiment of this newly independent nation potentially might collapse in on its itself. So that's when you get what at the time was called either the Philadelphia Convention or the Federal Convention and what we now call the Constitutional Convention. 55 delegates at various points meet over the summer of 1787 in Philadelphia. They meet in secret. So there's, there's nobody taking notes. There's no press there. Um, It's just the the delegates. I read somewhere that even though Philadelphia in the summer is stifling, they nailed shut the windows so that people couldn't kind of try and open the windows to hear in with what was was happening. And in an era before air conditioning, I imagine that was not pleasant. So they they took it it seriously. Um, And of course, what we now know happened, they they met to amend the Articles of Confederation. And what they ended up doing was creating this entirely new system of government, which we now call the, uh, or now refer to as the the Constitution. They they worked on it in several, first several months. they created the the document that we all know and sometimes love, but we certainly find it interesting to to look at. And that starts a two-year process by which each of the states holds a ratifying convention where each state has to approve it separately before it potentially goes into effect. That's a two-year process. There's some really interesting history around that because not everybody wanted it. Lots of people thought actually it was a bad idea. So you get the Federalists who support the Constitution and the Anti-Federalists who object to it. It's like the first party system in a mm-hmm. weird kind of kind of way. And eventually, of course, the Constitution is ratified and goes into effect in 1789. I suppose it's important. I'm a historian. So I I really also want to note that the Constitution is a historical document. You can read it as a historical document, not just as a framework of government. I think American politicians like to hold it up and go, hey, look at this. Look at this wonderful document and, you know, handed down by all these wise dead white men, you know, who who single handedly creating the single best document ever known to, to man. And didn't they just predict everything and no 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 that's it's a boring history it's not accurate and it means we fundamentally mis- misunderstand the the constitution so it's not this kind of i don't know semi-mythical document that was handed down from from on high it's a pragmatic document right it's full of compromises if you look at it carefully and you know you see those compromises by men and it was men at the constitutional convention who had different backgrounds and different aims and different ideas and different approaches from states that wanted different things out of this process, but all of whom realized that compromise was better than not getting anything and that they needed to find something on which they could all agree. 
They also sort of suspected that as some of the leading figures from their states, if this went into effect in the first elections, they would probably get elected. So they would be the ones who would then be responsible for working out some of the problems. So there there are instances where the language is fudged. It's it's left deliberately vague. There are And, And of course, this is why institutions like slavery were able to become entrenched in law because there had to be that that bipartisan yep. compromise right yeah and slavery if you like slavery is the big compromise mm. right between the southern what had it wasn't strictly regional at the time of the constitution but slavery was a bigger institution in the southern states than it wasn't was in the northern states by this point and some northern states had begun to to abolish it so mm. the, the constitution's full of those kinds of of compromises and if you understand it in his, its historical context they make sense even if they don't necessarily make sense if you see it to take it out of that historical moment. So when I'm asking people, asking my students particularly to read the constitution, I'm always saying to them, you have to remember the history. You have to remember what this came out of and why certain things are done in certain ways, which we think now are a bit odd or strange as the, the way those, those come through. It's, it's a much more interesting document if you think about it in its historical context than it is if you just go, oh, yeah, it's a perfect thing that governs everything well. It's like, no, no, it doesn't. Uh, and, but there are reasons for that. There's a, a big debate about how far the, the founders thought that, or how long the founders thought that the constitution would last. I don't think any of them probably would think it would be two centuries later. We're at, as we record this, it's 234 years and counting. But we know that they, they hoped that it would probably at last longer than the Articles of Confederation, right? And at least for a generation or, or so. So they included an amendment process in it. So a way in which as society changed, as they found things didn't necessarily work. There was a way of, of changing it, which is the the amendment process, which brings us on to the third thing you asked me about, which is the Bill of Rights. So the Bill of Rights is the collective name for the first ten amendments to the U.S. Constitution. Right? That's that's simply what that that is. They came into effect in 1791, so a couple of years after the the Constitution, and they came as a result of the battle for ratification. So when they sent this document out to the states and said, look, look at what we've created. Isn't this great? Now go and vote for it and so we can have this this new government. The, a lot of the anti-federalists came back and said, no, there are things about this we don't like. We think that it gives too much power here or it doesn't protect these rights that exist in our state constitutions or we've always done things this this way. We're, we're not sure about it. So what people like James Madison, who's one of the big figures in, in this, did was sort of say to them, well, okay, we understand that, but surely having this is better than not having it, given the problems that we've got at, at the moment. How about if you vote for it, we promise that the first thing we do when it goes into effect is to take on board your considerations and see what we can do. So it's more compromise. Right? It's, it's compromise. It's bargaining to get the, the constitution through. So once the constitution goes into effect, Madison and Hamilton and the others begin to look at the suggestions that were made by the states um, as part of the ratification process to see what they can do. They create a list of 12 amendments. The first two actually don't get accepted at that point. Um, And so they're left with 10, which is what we now know as the 
Bill of Rights because they all come together. They all come up at one point and they include some of the most fundamental rights that American citizens think of when they think of their, their rights. So freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, the right to bear arms. So they cover really important things and it, it's hard to imagine the constitution without them, but they are technically amendments to the constitution that, that come later. But it's um, it's interesting because you touched on earlier how the constitution and the amendments to it are often held up today um, when it's convenient to defend themselves or to accuse others. But the wording of the constitution and of the amendments are so broad that the interpretation of that is almost infinite, right? Yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? It's really <laughs> I mean, it's it's not if what you want is clear answers, but if as a historian trying to understand it, the the process of working out how those interpretations change over time tells you a lot about how the country changes and what's seen as as important. And I think it's also probably important to note that when we think of the Bill of Rights now, we think of them as grants of rights, like what we would call positive rights or the right to have something or do something. So the right to freedom of speech or the right to bear arms and those kinds mm. of things. But actually the framers saw them more as, as negative rights or more as freedom from. So if you read the First Amendment, which sort of sets the tone for some of the, the others, it says, Congress shall make no law. And, and what they're effectively saying is people have these rights already what we're doing by codifying these things and having these amendments is saying government has no right to trample on them. It can't do anything about them. It's about keeping the size of government small about or making sure that it it doesn't get too powerful in the way that they thought the British government had had done. Mm. And that that interpretation holds until really the middle of the 20th century. Things change significantly with what we call the rights revolution from the late 1950s into the 1960s, which fundamentally alters the way that we think about these rights and the way in which they were applied in, in some ways. But yeah, so if you like, the Declaration of Independence declares the country independent. The Constitution is the framework of government. The Bill of Rights are the first 10 amendments that were part of the compromise for getting the Constitution ratified and put in place in the, the first place. One of the really interesting things about how all of these documents came to be is there's this this constant thread of not wanting to give too much power to a central government and I, I, that feels like that's probably heavily in response to the fact that they were rebelling against a monarchy and, and, and that kind of system and even today there's still that sort of tug of war of not wanting to give the federal government too much power that restricts individual states which kind of brings me on to my next question which is you know the constitution is all well and good but when you've got this this separation between federal law and state law how effective is it and, and what's the difference how do how do all these things sort of coexist yeah and i think it's an important point to remember again this point about the constitution as a historical document it comes out of the experience of the revolution and everything that led up to it so they had concerns about the power of government that maybe if you were about to rewrite it now you would you would have fewer concerns about that 
perhaps. So you have to, to see it in, in that, that light. I think you also have to remember, of course, we talk about America as a democracy, but actually it's a federal system. These 13 states had very little in common with each other, except for the fact that by a certain point, they really didn't like the British very much. Um, <laughs> and it's that sort of, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend type type thing for a while. So when they're trying to create this, this new country, each of those former colonies now now states um, they've got their own history that they're, they're used to having their own governments uh, they used in some cases dealing with their own economy having their own currency and those kinds of things and they don't want to give that up they didn't just fight this revolution to give up all the power that they feel like they just gained to another distant form of, of government so the states were always intended to be more powerful than the federal government, which is hard, I think, for us to understand, because when we think about American government, we think about the federal national government. But that's not how it was intended. Most power was to be in the states. And if you read the Constitution, it, it becomes clear that, that that's the case. It comes out, of, like I said, that, that revolutionary history. So that the key sections of the Constitution, right, uh, Article 1, Section 8, which sets out the powers of Congress, and the things that it can do, the things it has power over, and Article 2, Section 2, which sets out the powers of the presidency. And again, what authority the, the president has and, and where it doesn't. And this listing wasn't was, was the same thing as in a way about the Bill of Rights, was about saying, these are the things you can do and only the things that you can do. Don't step out of your lane basically, was, was really what the Constitution is, is saying to the, the federal government. This is what you can, can do. Everything else remains within the, the remit of the states because that's how we intended it to be. Mm -hmm. So there is some overlap, but effectively most power was always intended to be with the, the states. And the federal government, when you look at those powers, the powers of, of Congress, they are sort of things that are broadly you would define as being national. So international trade, things like currency, to, so everybody's got a, an equivalent or the same currency so you can pay off international debts and, and do all of those kinds of things. The raising of taxes, the setting of, of tariffs. The post office, actually, believe it or not, is mentioned in the constitution, but it speaks to the importance of communication and the, the need to have systems of, of communication across this um, new country and the military as well. So all of those things in the constitution about setting up the framework of government are about keeping limits on the size of the federal government so that it didn't trample on the powers of the states or on the rights that many of the famous sort that individuals had just, just naturally. And actually, if, if you read the 10th Amendment to the Constitution, the, the 10th Amendment sort of makes this clear, even though it, it came a little bit later. It says, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people, which is a slightly long-winded way of effectively saying, if it's not set out in the Constitution, the states have power over it. From very early on, if anybody listening to this has seen the musical Hamilton or has, has listened to the, the music or, or read anything about this, you know that the debates about what kind of fell under the term national gets debated from very early on. <laughs> um, and the battles between the power of the federal government versus the, the state governments arise really early. Um, and have appeared at various points over American history. So it doesn't solve the problem, but that's sort of how the founders intended it to work, right? Which is 
you lived most of your life under the power of the the state, which largely governed most of the things that that most ordinary Americans were were doing. Um, it was only if you got involved in, in a kind of national scene that you really had much to do with the the federal government. Things like the Bill of Rights didn't apply to the states until the 20th century because of the way it was written. So for all the talk about freedom of speech or freedom of religion, throughout the 19th century, states are banning the sending of things through the post, um, stopping people saying things that they want, putting them in prison for stuff along these lines. There is full trampling of all kinds of rights that we would consider to be really important because the state, it wasn't until the 20th century that people began to think, "Uh, actually, maybe the Bill of Rights should apply to the the states as well. But this, when we move from that kind of idea to what we know now, which is a much more powerful central government where we think about the president and Congress, that really comes from the 1930s onwards. It comes as a result of the emergency of the Great Depression of the the 1930s, which of course was a worldwide phenomenon, the creation of the New Deal legislative program under President Franklin Roosevelt, which pulls power to the center because it's the only body that has the resources to deal with the emergency. Uh, Then what you have immediately after is World War II. And then almost immediately after the end of World War II, you've got the start of the Cold War. So all of those things pull power to the center um, and fundamentally change the way that Americans think about the role of the the federal government. But it's relatively recent. I mean, we're talking in the last hundred years from American history before that, the federal government was pretty small. Presidents were sort of known, but not really. They weren't the most important person involved in, in this. So it changes really radically in, um, in the 20th century. That's really interesting. And we, we definitely need to, to, to unpack the New Deal in a lot more detail sometime. But, uh, you know, it's interesting how um, there almost was a lot of foresight when that was drafted because it was broad enough to have the flexibility to be interpreted and amended over time as opinions change, as, you know, as the world changes. And that kind of brings me on to the amendment process. So as you've explained, you know, there is a, a process for amendments to the Constitution to be brought in, um, the most famous one being the right to bear arms, which is the cause of no end of debate. But how does someone get an amendment through? You know, if you or I, let's say we're in America and we were like, OK, this isn't right. We need to change the law. We need to get an amendment to the Constitution. H- how do you do that? With a great deal of effort, um, <laughs> you need a very big kind of political movement. So I guess you start by talking to your friends and then you start by building it up. I mean, the amendment process was always designed to be difficult because the famous somewhat distrusted unbridled democracy. They were afraid of the, the power of, of democracy as we, we think about it. So it was always intended to be difficult as a way of making sure that only really important things got changed. It has become significantly more difficult as politics has become more divided in the United States. But to to pass a constitutional amendment, you need a two-thirds vote in both houses of Congress, so the House of Representatives and the Senate, or two-thirds votes in constitutional conventions called, called by the states. Now, that 
constitutional convention approach has never actually happened, but it's set out in the constitution. So primarily those amendments that have, have occurred have started out with, with two thirds votes in both chambers. And then you need three quarters of the states to approve it as well. So if you as a URI as an individual want to get that done, what you have to do is find a way to get it on the political agenda, which means you need to start a campaign, you need to get publicity, you need to get people on board, you need to start moving it through, which is difficult before, but it's certainly much more difficult now, which is why a lot of amendments have come at the initiative of national level first, rather than ground up, although not all of them. But it's hard and it has become harder. There are people might be surprised to know only 27 amendments to the US Constitution in total. We already dealt with the first 10 that were passed in 1791. So that takes us to 17. Mm. If you consider the fact that one amendment repealed the other, um, so in the <laughs> in the 1930s, there, or, there was a, a push for prohibition yeah. um, for the, the banning of the, the sale of, of alcohol. And that was done by constitutional amendment, the 18th amendment, in which passed in 1919. And then a few years later, they decided that maybe this wasn't such a good idea, uh, partly because of the, the crime and violence that had come and also the loss of revenue from taxing legal yeah. alcohol. So the 21st amendment overturns it in 1933. So if we take those two out, because they basically cancel each other out <laughs> as well, what you've got are 15 substantive amendments in the last 234 years. And, and just to put that into context, uh, roughly how many amendments are proposed? You know, it's really difficult to find out an exact number, but about there have been about 12,000 proposed amendments okay. um, over so, American history. Um, so it's a very, very small percentage then that actually it's get passed. a tiny, <laughs> tiny percentage. And most of those that are proposed never really get very far. They, they don't even necessarily get to a vote in Congress. They go to the like the, what's called the committee stage and nothing happens. So of those 12,000 over history, 33 were supported by Congress and passed on to the states for, for votes, which means, if my maths is right, there are six throughout history that were proposed but have either failed or, in the case of some of the early ones where they didn't think to put like deadlines on them by which they needed to, to be ratified, some of them are still technically open, but the Constitution is not the be-all and end-all of American political life. And I, I think it's probably important to remember that, that there are, you know, laws have to abide by the terms of the Constitution. Everything Congress does has to fit into those powers that are set out in Article 1 of the, the Constitution. But within that, there's a lot of leeway and states sometimes take action too ahead of the, the federal government. So some of these issues often what what a movement for an amendment does is flag up the need for something to to happen and then it might yeah. happen at state level or it might happen at federal level but it happens in a different way so if then as as you say the constitution isn't the be all and end all why is it that americans still hold it up as such an important thing because it's more than a framework of government, partly because of its longevity, and I think partly because of the Bill of Rights, actually. It's come to be seen as sort of a, a statement of a shared political culture. 
of a kind of statement of what it means to be American, about what the United States stands for in a way, what its values are, what what it, it's expressing. And that's perhaps not unusual. You know, the United States, when it came into creation, it didn't have any of the other things that many nations have when they develop. It doesn't have a shared language or a shared religion or a shared culture, but it had the constitution as something that held all Americans together. And it's kind of taken on this sort of semi-mythical image. It's practical as well, but it, it, it combines this idea of, of kind of shared values and, and shared principles. So when you start messing with it, it's not just about rewriting the language to make it clear. It's about tampering with the idea of the essence of what it means to be American. And it's why people feel so strongly about this and ultimately why the Supreme Court has come to be such an important player in this because constitutional amendment has become so difficult, but the Supreme Court has the power to interpret the constitution. It has taken on the role of shaping the, that vague wording that we were talking about earlier on. And that puts it right in the center of these debates about American identity and American national culture. So these are debates about the wording of the Second Amendment, right? What does it mean to have the right to bear arms or what types of speech are protected under the First Amendment? aren't just about, aren't just definitional. They're, they're not just these kind of dry debates about the meaning of words or, or what they meant, but people feel that they are a fundamental question about how the nation stands, how it, you know, how Americans live their lives. And it makes, that makes it interesting, but really hard and really controversial if you want to criticize it or if you think that changes need to be made. Um, but it, it, it is the thing that in many ways is one of the, the few defining documents or elements that holds the, the US together. So yeah, you, you tamper with it at your peril. America, a history podcast is produced and hosted by me, Liam Heffernan. A special thanks to our faculty member this week, Dr. Emma Long. And if you enjoyed this episode, we're going to put some extra resources in the show notes so you can continue learning about the Constitution. And of course, don't forget to check out our website to tell us what you think and to suggest future episodes. Next week, I'm joined by Dr. Rebecca Fraser as we take a closer look at the institution of slavery and the people who were willing to die to keep it alive. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.